Welcome to Movies Inc, the business of film, here to inform and entertain on all things film business. I'm Sarah, founder of ES Collab, an executive producing and business affairs company based in New York. And I'm Charlotte, a film and theatre producer based in London. Each episode, we're joined by an awesome guest, producers, lawyers, executives or creatives who have been there, done that. They've made the big and small films, the films no one saw and the films everyone saw. And they're here to tell you all about the big and small mistakes they made, what they learned, and hopefully impart some advice about the business we call film. Lucky number seven, Sarah. Lucky number seven. Well, you know who else is lucky is us, because our guest today is Matt Viddens, Mm. the CEO of Matchbox Pictures in Australia, who was great, had a lot of fun with him. Also kept him for a long time chatting. Honestly, one of my, I, I got to tell you, this was probably one of my my favourite episodes to record because I got to talk about all the things that push all my buttons. Everyone will, will get to hear it <laughs> in just a moment. Um, but he has a, you know, he has a background in business and business affairs and legal. And so yes. we speak the same language. Yes. And I also interjected sometimes. Um, <laughs> but something that's grabbed our attention last year that we haven't talked about yet is the CAA-ICM merger. Yes. Which is big news. It's massive. Yeah, it's massive. The big four are now going to be the big three. Pending regulatory approval, (laughs) but presumably that's, you know, a foregone conclusion. Mm. They're going to have a lot of resources and given what they've, all the huge, all the big agencies have gone through with the WGA suit and then the cuts and the layoffs during the pandemic, this will probably be a good thing for them but then you know I mean I guess for producers I don't know you know (laughs) I think it also remains to be seen you know if if the talent stays or if the agents stay who you know have those relationships with the talent because CAA shouldn't forget that it was born out of a bunch of agents leaving um, and starting up their own shop and there's a lot of talk that the same thing's going to happen because CAA is such a behemoth already at the moment and people have that entrepreneurial spirit who work there and they want to do the Michael Ovitz <laughs> thing and, and break away. Totally. So we'll see. Yeah, totally. And I think there's definitely room now for even like the mid- mid-tier agencies to step up. Absolutely. And And talent don't just want to be packaged into deals that they're not kind of in control of. They want to be represented and they want to have some attention given to them and you can't always do that, especially if you're not Brad Pitt or someone who garners a lot of attention. You maybe you want to look for a, an agent who's who's has some time for you. Anyway, I do recommend reading Powerhouse, the book about CAA and how it came to be. It is a absolute tome, but it was very enjoyable from start Ooh, to finish. Oh, I haven't I actually haven't read that, so I'm going to put that on my list right behind the New York Times bestseller called Boundaries, which Oh. Yeah, it's a self-help book about how to set boundaries. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can talk about that later, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, let's get to it. Yes, let's get Matt to it. Bittens is on the podcast today. As I said, he's the COO at Matchbox Pictures and he sits across all commercial aspects of the development, financing and production of scripted and unscripted television projects. Done recently, big hit clickbait. They've also did Stateless, The Heights, Glitch, Safe Harbor, 
Secret City, Wanted, Nowhere Boys, and apart from all those dramas, they also do The Real Housewives of Melbourne. Matt, welcome. To kick things off, would you tell us a little bit about who you are, what you yeah, do, sure. and how you got here? My name is Matt Vittens, and I'm the, the Chief Operating Officer of Matchbox Pictures. Matchbox is a television production company, so we, we mostly are known for our work in scripted TV drama. Uh, we also do a lot of unscripted. We do some occasional documentaries. We've done feature films and will hopefully do more. So my job as the COO is is wonderfully vague. It's part of the management team of the company. Uh, so in a sense, it's sort of, you know, I think if you if you read my LinkedIn bio, it's across the development, production, financing of our projects. I think, you know, if you expand on the management part of the role, it's that I work pretty closely with our uh, production finance, uh, business affairs teams, HR, IT. Um, so there's there's sort of a practical aspect to it. The other fun part is there's a strategic aspect to it. So um, I spend a lot of time thinking about our business development and, you know, some of the things I hope we might talk about today, a little bit about how Matchbox has moved more into an international space or um, some of the other things that we've done, uh, which are not, you know, weren't necessarily core cool business five years ago. But your background is entertainment law. You you used to work for a firm, right? Mm. Well, <laughs> I mean, my background is really corporate law. So I was a, an M&A lawyer for the, for the first part of my career. And so I worked at um, Allen's in Sydney and then a, a firm in New York for a year. Look, that was a very different world to even entertainment law, I think. It's sort of, you know, the, the, the much drier end of, of legal practice. But I was tending to work on media deals. So, it, you know, one of the corporate deals I did was a, a bond deal for DreamWorks. Oh. Or, in, in fact, we did network uh, channel deals for CBS and 10, things like that. One of the deals that we did, though, was when NBC Universal invested into Matchbox. So through that deal, I got to know the team at Matchbox, which was a, a, a small company at that stage, but also got to know the, the team at NBCU well. So I think I, I was at that point where things were tracking along reasonably well as a corporate lawyer. I was having a nice time when Michael McMahon, who was one of the founders of Matchbox, um, and, and Michael spent his career doing high-integrity nature documentaries and so on and so forth. Uh, Michael found himself as the lawyer for the Real Housewives of Melbourne. And I think after a season of that, he decided that Matchbox might need to hire a new lawyer and ask me if I'd be interested. Oh, that's um, funny. That's hilarious. So I went from from corporate law into production really without any sense of what I was getting myself into and obviously really in, enjoyed it once I got into to Matchbox. But the, the steps from there were, you know, I became generally in, uh, across Matchbox legal and business affairs and then – I think one of the best things that can happen for you in terms of career progression was that my, my boss, Chris Oliver-Taylor, ended up leaving Matchbox to go to Fremantle. Right. Um, so there was a period there where I, I stepped in as the acting MD at Matchbox. We then hired uh, Alistair McKinnon, who's the, the MD now. And it, look, either it was strategically brilliant or it did prove to be strategically sensible in, in hindsight. But while I was the acting MD, Felicity Harrison took over as the head of legal and business affairs for Matchbox. I was just so much better at it, you know. I, don't, <laughs> I think everyone decided that they had to find something else for me to do. So, right. um, McKinnon, McKinnon, bless him, came up with the the role as COO. So it's it's been a, a few years that we've been working together now with the Flick running legal and business affairs. My my role just drifting much more 
much more commercial, much more management. That's good. Cool. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> like going from corporate law to then entertainment law, there's there are principles that just don't apply that you kind of have to, you, have to <laughs> yeah. you know, you have to be so flexible in the world of film that you just can't afford to be in corporate law, right? So like how did you yeah. shift gears yeah. well, or was look, that why you were so terrible at being business affairs in legal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it didn't help. I, I mean there's a, there's a huge cultural difference I think going from corporate, corporate law to production and, and I suppose – not in some respects, you know. I mean, if you're financing a TV show, it's very similar to the sort of equity and debt deals that you do in any kind of corporate law firm. I think the the difference, though, is that you then suddenly have, you know, talent management issues alongside in a way that you just don't experience in corporate law. Yeah. You know, the, the the concerns that someone might have become come from a very different place. I, you know, I, I think you talk about you need a lot more flexibility in in entertainment law as a practice i think that's that's true i think you don't have the luxury of sort of almost endless amounts of time to throw at a problem in a way that you sometimes you probably don't in corporate law but you it's much less exaggerated Mm -hmm. so i think you have to accept that you can't over legal productions and in in fact no one really appreciates it much when you do so that's that's a shift in tempo but actually that shift in tempo means that sometimes you need to be much less flexible in entertainment law than you could be in corporate law and what I mean by that, I guess, is corporate legal setting, it, everyone's very much a, a getting to yes kind of negotiator, right? Like you you sit there and work through the problem collectively and try to come up with, you know, you try not to take hard positions that might take you to a, a dead end. I, I think, you know, particularly working in reality television, for instance, sometimes you actually have to very quickly just get to a no. We can't do it. Are we moving on or not? So like, I, I think that the pressure of time actually means that sometimes we have to we have to draw harder lines a little bit faster in entertainment than you, you might have to in, in large-scale M&A negotiations, for instance. Yeah, nice. You mentioned earlier about how Matchbox is entering this exciting period of becoming a global business. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? So if you go back to the start of my time at Matchbox, that was 2015, which was the year that Netflix launched its service in Australia. So, you know, I think all markets, including the US, have gone through this very rapid internationalization in those five or six years that's been really interesting. And so if you look at what we're doing at the moment, we're really enjoying playing in those margins of what's an international project, what's an Australian project, you know, what are we setting up and and how are we launching it? So, you know, the, the examples of that, I think, are we have have just delivered clickbait to Netflix. So there's a trailer for that that went out only a few days ago. Clickbait is just a wonderful sort of development story in a sense. It it, it came out of a script competition in Adelaide. There There was a period where we looked at setting it up in the UK. There was a period where, a successful period where we looked at setting it up in the, the US. It, the show became set in Oakland. And then when we were looking at where we would produce it, we uh, pitched a model and have that filming in Melbourne. So, you know, it, it sort of came this full circle loop around the world to be filmed in Australia, but set in Oakland. If, if you put the question there of, is that an Australian show or is it some other category of show? I mean, I, I think on, on any of the objective criteria, it's Australian, but yeah. it, it does play with that international model where, you know, there were an international cast, international directors involved, international writers, but it was led creatively by Australians. It's Australian IP. 
it was filmed in Australia, you know. So that that that, that blurring of that international domestic boundary is something that I think we're we're finding really interesting. What's the impact on a business model or the overflow effect of that sort of globalization of TV? You know, making Australian TV for a local audience versus a global audience. Yeah, look, I, I don't know if this is the best way to talk about it. The, the the way that I frame it up sometimes is if you think about just who is your first audience for the show, and if your first audience for the show is an Australian audience, you know, you're, you're talking about twenty million people, and that takes you to a particular budget level. Mm. If your first and secondary audience is, you know, what the distributors would call a local for global, so the first audience is Australian, but you've got a substantial secondary audience, that takes you to a different budget level and a different different ambition if you're setting up something like um clickbait or you know one of the other shows we've announced is things i know to be true uh with nicole kidman's company it's been placed with amazon that that's an international show you know that's your first audience for that is global svod so i think it's a a pretty clear line from that first audience through to your production budget and your your business model for the show yeah weirdly i think I don't know if this is true, but it feels like we followed children's TV into the global kind of co-pro scenario because as a kid, I remember watching, yeah. for example, The Saddle Club, which was very Aussie. And then there was a random Canadian girl as the lead. <laughs> and we were, as kids, we just accepted this. We were like, that's fine. Sure. And as an adult, you realize, oh, well, Canada's, you know, equivalent ABC put in half the money. So they had to have a Canadian actor in the lead role. But it was also yeah. in Australia and it was very Australian. It was about Australian horses and a horse riding club. But, yeah, it feels like now the international markets yeah. cottoned on to the fact that if you invite AMC and BBC2 and Netflix to the party, you could make a much bigger budget show and be guaranteed that, you know, 100 million people are going to see it. I think the imperative for that has probably been driven by the streaming services a bit, that, you know, we we can't expect a show made at a mil or 1.5 mil an hour to cut through on it as a Netflix tile as easily as, as stuff that's produced for four or five times yeah. that, that level. So, you know, I, I, I think if you say that, that drama is competing on that, that level at the moment, and I think there was a natural sort of gravitational pull to try and work out how you could expand your co-production models to go and match to a global SVOD show, which, you know, sells globally from, from the first minute. Yeah. I think actually there's a really interesting trend though, where we might've seen that maximized out and, and there's, there, there's possibly a question of, do we need those massively expanded budgets to compete or can we compete on other criteria, which is the, the perpetual swing in Hollywood, isn't it? You know, do, are you doing blockbusters or are you doing like a Blumhouse style model where it's totally. more smaller bets that try and, you know, break out? So, you know, I, I think TV might be going through a pendulum swing that feature film right. has been through a few cycles of. But I, I wonder if our sort of mass budget TV will probably have a place in the landscape. But there's, there's a lot of, it seems to me like there's a lot of interest on looking at what exactly do you get for that money. Yeah. I think we both want to pivot to talent agents, like with any person really, you know, talent reps generally come with varying temperaments. And one of the things for me when I moved from Sydney to the US was really navigating the difference in like negotiation styles. Do you have your own kind of rules in like how to go about 
um, <laughs> negotiating with talent reps of varying temperaments, I guess. Yeah, I, I have quite a long answer to this one, I guess, guys. Um, Go for it. Are you happy for me to ramble around the subject and maybe we'll hit yeah. on something? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I, I, I think there's there's there are some clear cultural differences in an essentially Australian kind of style of negotiation, style of project setup and so on versus a US market show, US agent dynamics, et cetera. In saying that, though, I think what that glosses over is that um, um, you're probably comparing Australia in 2015 to, you know, the US market. Uh, and I think what we're getting is, you know, so many more people like like you guys that are working across international markets. So I think there's been such a process of harmonisation between those sort of those different cultural styles over the last five or six years that, like I say, you sort of, you're sort of now comparing extremes on a spectrum right. um, to try and understand them, which I think is a useful exercise, but let's not you know at, at a particular level of project you know i think there's there's becoming just an international deal language and a, a set of practices which are probably more harmonized to the us and and that's the industry that we're working in if i had to go and compare the differences between like a us reps and their expectations and then the, the australian sort of cultural practice on deal negotiation if you like i think a, a couple of factors play into it so one is if you go back to the 2015 production in Australia model or pure Australian drama, our deals actually move in a very tight range. So you know your finance plan off the back of an envelope pretty quickly, right? Like you throw in the producer offset, Australian broadcaster license fee, equity, screen odds, state state agency, you get to about, you know, what, 1.5 mil, give or take, depending on the nature of the project, right? Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't move too far out of that band for premium Australian drama. Mm -hmm. Your first audience is Australian, if you like. Working backwards from that, your deals don't move too far either. So, you know, I think when we were looking at deals on that model, like your option fees move in some range depending on the nature of the project, but they're not wild fluctuations, right? Like they're, mm -hmm. at least they're in a much tighter band than if you go to the US market. So if you go to a US market where you could be producing anything from like 2 mil an hour to 10 mil an hour, if your your option deals or your talent deals or your writer deals have this similar, like vastly different range um, compared to what we were doing in Australia. So I think when you've got that vastly different range from the, the high end to the low end, that translates into a different negotiation sort of practice, if you like. So, you know, my expectation is usually that what that means is the American agents, the US agents will come in with pretty aggressive ambit claims as an opening. Mm -hmm. uh, and you work backwards from that. So, you know, that's that's tended to be – I mean, obviously, some deals are much more focused than that. You have clearer precedent and so on. But it, some of them, I feel like, just have a much a much bigger range. And so the incentive is to go out even beyond that range and, and sort of try and, and set the parameters that way. How you deal with that, I guess, is complicated. Um, and I think there's a couple of things that make it even more complicated still when we're negotiating from this territory into the U.S., so one of them is just the classic sort of nature of relationships, right? Like I, I think a lot of Australian producers and, and executives working in this space don't have that sort of career-long set of relationships with those agents, or at least not yet. So, you know, we haven't had that thing where everyone came out of 
the mail room at CAA and now we're in different corners of the business, but, you know, we understand each other. Like we haven't, I don't think we've had a lot of time to develop those kinds of connections. And I think that factors in when you're not doing repeat business with someone and also probably a function of a a much bigger market as well, right? Like, you know, if you're not doing repeat business with someone, I think the agent's incentive, the incentive on both sides is probably to get a little bit more extreme. You know, we we put our take it or leave it on on a faster trigger. You know, I think agents put their amber claims or, or you know, the, how much they're concerned to preserve the relationship is is, is less. Um, if you compare that to, you know, the Australian market where I think at one point, you know, almost half of our riders were coming through one agency. So, you know, of course everyone mm-hmm. everyone's incentivised to sort of limit the intensity of those negotiations and or, you know, get get a lot more constructive uh, about how you, how you go and resolve them. Yeah. The the other one I think that plays into this is probably the headline is an information asymmetry. So I I think where these deals can go off the, off the rails a little bit is an information asymmetry about either or both markets, US and Australian. Mm-hmm. So f- f- I mean the main the first thing we're all trying to do in putting these deals together is not do a bad deal and not lose our jobs. <laughs> and I think that that's it's hard to be particularly confident that you're you're doing the right kind of deal when you don't know both markets intimately and you don't have you know a huge volume of precedent, for instance, that you can draw on to say this is in range or it's outside out of range. Yeah. And I think when we've had this moment of the last five six years where the Australian market has been changing a lot, you know what what's a good deal is a little bit harder to predict. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean that's that's a, a, a function of a changing market. So I think, you know, if you, if you start a negotiation and a, a lot of our development deals, for instance, now have to contemplate that we might set this up in Australia or we might set it up internationally. So you have sort of tiered deals that move between the two. For a US agent that has worked in the US market only, we're asking them to understand Australian project economics. And so I think, you know, that's that's a hard ask. I, I think similarly sometimes when we're coming into US, US deals without as much background, as you know the people doing us market deals every day it, it's hard to get a grounding that helps you go and navigate through the deal so you know i think the only thing that we we can do through this is on one side of it, you know continue to build that body of precedent that understanding of each market on, on the other side you know there's a role in being pretty transparent i think about you know the economics that you're facing when you're putting this stuff together so you know spending some time with the US reps to be be clear on the deal context or the, the economic context that you bring into a negotiation. I agree with you and I disagree with you. My default approach is always just being really transparent and that approach really did work in Australia and doing business with you know the same lawyers it's such a small industry um, you do establish that relationship and that trust and it's it it, it works but you know, coming to the US and particularly where, where the market is so much larger and then dealing with talent reps, they generally, look, not all of them, but that kind of, you know, easygoing, transparent approach just is not useful and it's not helpful. I think there's another parallel that we think through on this a little bit. The best negotiations tend to be the ones where everyone sort of comes comes straight in in a pretty collaborative style and you, you kind of work out where you need to get to. And, and I think that actually enhances trust in creative relationships and so on as well, right? Like the, everyone feels happy working together if you can get that model. Totally. I think the risk to it though is if you come in with a very collaborative open here are all my cards 
kind of position. Like you're taking a bit of a leap of faith where you expose yourself to a bad deal if someone comes back with hard positions that they won't move off. And and so what that pushes you to then is uh, it, it, it's almost a prisoner's dilemma dynamic. You know, like if both people walk in collaborative, you get to a good deal quickly and everyone wins. If yeah. both people come in with a hard positional negotiation, you have a tough negotiation, but you end up with a good deal. If one of you comes in collaborative, one of you comes in with hard positions, like the, the collaborator tends to get screwed over. So like, like I say, there's a, a, a prisoner's dilemma dynamic to that, which is, which is hard to navigate. Yeah. I, and look, I actually think probably some of the, the tougher negotiations we've had have been the ones that get very positional and very drawn out over a long period. And I, I think those can be quite damaging. Mm. So, you know, I think, I think I agree with you that the preference perhaps is to over-explain, do it a lot, and then hold your positions from that basis. The, you know, the other dynamic, uh, talking about this information asymmetry thing, you know, I think actually one of the things that will start to resolve that, probably a few deals have to fall over for people to really, you know, feel out what are the breaking points on this kind of model, you know, which is obviously obviously a shame, but part of the growing pains, I think, of, of changing markets. The wild ambit claim and negotiate back aggressively and slowly is 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 probably also an unfortunate kind of product of, of that dynamic while we're while we're trying to find out where the levels yeah, are. I have so much commentary. I just don't know if I can say it. <laughs> Make it public. Go for it, man. Go for it. Can't be in the memoir. In the oh my God. Yeah. I mean I I you know, I was speaking to someone and they were saying to me, oh this particular agent at this particular agency is known for basically holding out until the very last like two days before shoot backs you into a corner and then mm. says we we accept that <laughs> it, you know talking about information asymmetry information asymmetry between the rep and the client and not only on the talent side but mm. sometimes also with production company or the producer and then whoever's representing them you know the producers saying you know this performer's my friend and they they want to be in the film um mm. but then the talent rep is saying oh they don't they don't care they've got like a million other offers they don't this doesn't matter to them but then the producer's mm. telling you well that's crazy because i got a text from them this morning that was like i'm so excited to be on board and i i don't think that that's yeah. a story that is unique i think a lot of people have had those experiences and i just feel like there's got to be a better way yeah look I, I think that's fair i mean i'm sure you've got stories of that from both australian agents and from u.s agents right like that, yeah. that's probably not a cultural difference point as much as a yeah. dynamic of the industry point yeah Shall we change tack slightly? <laughs> uh, what is your average Tuesday like? What do you do oh, on a Tuesday? At the, at the moment? Yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, what is your job? I know you said at the beginning it's quite a vague kind of job. You're involved in every aspect of the business. Uh, look, it, it, it's very hard to work out what an average day is at the moment. Yes. Um, <laughs> in, a, in a pandemic era, isn't it? So. I guess what that gives a picture is, you know, it's a pretty flexible kind of work setup at the moment because of that. We've been talking a lot about like that internationalization of TV. So that means that we tend to do calls pretty late with the UK. Um, we tend to do calls pretty early or kind of through the morning with um, LA. 
and means my Mondays are really pretty quiet because um, you know LA's sort of yeah. offline still on still on Sunday for that period. And conversely, you know, Saturday morning calls are pretty common. So, you know, what's worked well for me through this this whole period, I think, is that that flexibility really suits some people. It really suits me a lot. Um, so my my day tends to be a bit of a blend sort of across the day of, of work and, and life interfering a lot. Yeah. The things that are on my mind in any particular day change a fair bit. So I, my, my first love, I suppose, is always going to be legal and business affairs. And, and so I, I still continue to interfere in that a little bit. Um, a lot of the issues that we're trying to work through at the moment with production in Australia are, you know, not run-of-the-mill issues. So travel, like moving people between states or bringing people in internationally is something that, I didn't expect would be as much of my my, my day or concern yeah. and probably won't be next year. But, you know, that's a, a travel logistics are, are just a big, big thing for us at the moment. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to ask you was how well do you think that we, you know, like lawyers and business affairs reps, how good are we at keeping up with emerging technologies and the implications on things we're agreeing to? So, for example, one thing that's always kind of industry standard and negotiated, but, you know, the right to use photo, name, likeness in a production. And, you know, there are industry, there are customs around, you know, approvals and all that sort of stuff. But there are new technology. I, we literally heard this, you know, like three or four weeks ago, where there are new technologies that basically photocopy a person. And then, and then once you have that photocopy, you can essentially, if you wanted to, create an entire film out of it. So, you know, yeah, in that right. sense, this is like, like the, the, the volumetric deep, capture. Deep yeah. fakes. Um, yeah. Look, I mean, I, I think we're obviously good and bad at it variously amongst the individuals involved, right? Like, you know, I think some people are looking forward more than others and some are getting through the day. Um, <laughs> I think as an industry, it's probably something for us to watch. So, it, you know, perhaps as an observation of the of the film industry when I first came into it, I think there is a lot of process and you know, norms and cultural practice of the film industry that's just accumulated since the, you know, since the silent era, right? Like we are, we are one where we continue to accumulate and build on a body of work rather than sort of throw it out and start again. So I, you know, I do wonder if there's a lot, like it, it, it's mind blowing to me that the games industry and the film industry are so separate. Yeah. there's, There's so little crossover between those two. Um, I think sort of as a film industry, we could learn a lot from sort of jumping over the fence and probably vice versa, right? But, you know, particularly as games and and film and TV cross over into each other's space at the moment, like does it strike you as kind of crazy that like there's such different industrial models and such different models of of working? and, and, and still don't seem to speak to each other that often, although, yeah. you know, maybe the conversation's happening that I'm just not a part of. Maybe that starts to happen over the next little while. So I, I do wonder if we've got to think of ourselves less as evolving like the Galapagos Islands and, you know, sink in with the rest of the world a little bit more or other industries a bit more. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Because I was also going to say you can't really... Mm-hmm plan for every scenario and if you do then you overcomplicate the deal and it's not practical really in, in highlighting the difficulty of that though you know i think your point's really well made that, that 
that there are stakes around this, right? Like I, I think some of the industrial models that we have for Australian television probably perversely mean that there's less Australian shows on Australian TV, particularly around library. You know, and the way we've set up residuals and relicensing fees and so on. I, I, I think, uh, you know, this is anecdotal and, and not really my field, but, um, you know, the relicensing costs to go and pay out actor residuals are probably more than the value of the relicense, which, you know, takes you to a dead end, says the deal doesn't get done, but means the show doesn't get sold. So, you know, I think we can set up frameworks that don't adapt well into the future that then aren't great for the industry. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think it's one to agonise about, even if it doesn't mean it's any easier to get the answer right. What's the future of your catalogue, say Secret City, which obviously premiered, I think, I assume on the ABC or SBS, and then has gone on to streaming platforms. Does Do your deals with them have a end date? And then do you have to go, are you constantly going to have to be reselling your catalogue or is there some kind of long-term solution that's in place? It's an interesting question. I think the business of a, of a producer for a long time was develop the catalogue and keep selling it, and that sort of that was a sustaining business model. You know, I, I think the in in a global S deal, you sell all of the territories, you bring forward all of the value or most of the catalogue value of that project up front, which gives you a whole lot of deal certainty or you know revenue certainty, I guess, in a in a way that the catalogue model didn't. The, the trade-off of that is that you just have less blue sky mm. or less of an opportunity to outperform. Right. So when we look back across our catalogue of shows, we've had a number on a, and particularly kids' shows, on a model which is go and sell every territory, sell it territory by territory, resell it if it's popular, you know, see, see if you can accumulate through to a, a successful title. That would probably exceed the level of deal that we might have done for an SVOD platform you know, on the successful ones and probably go under on the less successful ones. So, you know, I, I guess you're just training that off. I think what we'll, what we are settling on and, and probably what will continue to happen is that you try and diversify across the slate, right? Like that you've got a number that you're doing on one model and a number you're doing on others. So our final question, our standard closing question for all our guests, what does bankable mean to you? Isn't that funny? Uh, we were having a conversation internally about how the um, this concept seems to be differently described and you're almost in a, in a sense that moves with fashion. So, you know, bankable is one or undeniable is one that we've heard a lot lately. Or Look, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's that classic, you know, when you see it kind of element. And also, you know, I think, I think the other thing is that the commitment to that concept of, you know, something that's bankable or something that's undeniable, I think is a a really easy way to get unstuck. Like, I'm, I'm constantly surprised at the things that we think would should be a straight-to-series order from the second that we propose it, that often aren't. I, I think what bankable means to me is, is the, the thing is a trap. <laughs> <laughs> Better avoided. Movies Inc. The Business of Film is a podcast produced and hosted by us, Sarah McFarlane and Charlotte Howley. Our music is Pixel Drips by Marvig. Please visit our website at moviesincpod.com. Follow us on Instagram at moviesincpod and follow, subscribe and review the Movies Inc. podcast wherever you get your podcasts.